Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, though, to be honest, I'm not really sure that that is who I've always been. Yeah, no, Glenn, I have a long running theory that that I don't know what it is yet, that you used to be someone else or that you just collect the stories from other people, <laughs> like some sort of story collecting wizard. So this would not surprise <laughs> me. Um, and I'm Valerie Hoagland, and uh, I'm pretty sure I played this video game in, in high school, the video game that is Babylon 5. <laughs> yes, right. So we are doing a Babylon 5 episode today. The uh, episode is called Passing Through Gethsemane. It's the uh, fourth episode of season three of Babylon 5, which is, uh, I think, my personal favorite season of Babylon 5, though season four is pretty good too. And this aired on the 29th of November in 1995. It was written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Adam Nimoy. Yeah, I don't know why he hasn't legally had his name changed to Spock's son or Kid of Spock or something <laughs> like that. But yes, it is It is the, the son of Leonard Nimoy. Uh, I guess also now married to Jed Zia Dax, who I, yeah. I know is you know also actually a real person named Terry Farrell. But uh, yeah, exciting, exciting. Lots of Star Trek connections in this episode. Lots of Star Trek connections between, uh, or lots of connections between Babylon 5 and Star Trek in general. Uh, should explain what we are doing here. Uh, we are back in between our regularly scheduled episodes with this one because it's a uh, bonus commissioned episode. Uh, commissioned episodes are extra episodes that you, the listener, can hire us to do. And uh, in fact, we do a lot of these over on Elder Sign. Uh, and if you're a Patreon supporter, you can get discounts on them. And, and even at some levels of patron support, you get a, a free one or recurring free bonus episodes. And this commissioned episode is one that we actually gave away for free. This is something that we did as part of the contest that we held in early 2020 to encourage uh, listeners, to encourage you to write reviews of our podcasts. We didn't actually promote that here on Lower Decks, though, because, you know, we were on hiatus. Uh, but the winner got a free commissioned episode, and he chose uh, for us here at Lower Decks to do an episode of Babylon 5, and specifically this episode of Babylon 5. Uh, and this listener wrote a ton of reviews as well. I mean, like orders of magnitude <laughs> higher than anyone else. Uh, so we're very grateful for that. Thank you so much for all of that hard work. And if the rest of you out there in the audience like what we do, but have not yet written a review on you know whatever platform or app it is that you're using to get your podcast, we would really appreciate if you would take a minute or two to do that. Uh, this helps us find more listeners and you know positive reviews, I think, generally make Valerie feel pretty good about life. Yeah, just me. They they de they depress Glenn, so you know, uh, make sure to leave a balanced review. But they do feel nice. But um, but I you know, of course, we just welcome feedback. We want to um, we want to be bringing you content that you enjoy. Um, and yeah, Glenn, I wanted to ask you if if Babylon Five was just selected as something we should do, or if this particular episode was chosen. Yeah, so it was this particular episode. Uh, a lot of Babylon 5 is not standalone. I mean, it's a pretty serialized show, which uh, Babylon 5, I think, is an extraordinarily important TV show in uh, how we have gotten to prestige TV, how we have gotten to TVS 10-hour movies. Uh, so even though Babylon 5 had a pretty low budget and maybe not the best actors or the greatest sets all of the time, I think it was an extraordinarily important moment in television for that. So it's actually hard to find episodes that 
you could really do randomly out of order the way that uh, uh, that we're about to do this. Um, but I think listeners can probably tell from the way we're having this conversation that I have watched all of Babylon 5 uh, many times, but you, Valerie, have never seen it before this point. Uh, but I don't know, how much did you watch? I think you were going to watch a few episodes sort of around this one to get some more context, but how much did you actually watch to prepare for this? Yeah. Oh, I was waiting for this moment of public shame. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, fear fear uh, struck my heart uh, knowing that I would have to go on air and that I could not watch all of Babylon 5 and pretend to be an expert in it. Um, so I was going to have to ad- admit this this gap in my in my knowledge. Um, but in prepping for this episode, I watched um, the la- the first four episodes of season three. Um, and I read a lot about the show. And I, I will tell you, I am very confused. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> if you go even just on Wikipedia and look at like season synopses or um, show synopses, it, it, every sentence one after the other is like, wait, what? Wait, what? I feel like I have to study for a test to understand this. <laughs> and also a lot of the names of aliens um, rhyme with one another in a way that seems intentionally designed to confuse me. So even doing my best to read up on the first two seasons and the show in general, I just feel like I need to take a class in this for an entire year before I will fully understand. <laughs> I would love to teach a class on Babylon <laughs> 5. And I just remembered really, too, that, that you know, we did this game show at, at PhilCon in 2019 where we were drafting 1990s speculative fiction TV shows. And Babylon 5 was my first pick. It was the number one thing that I did chose. and uh, But it had actually still been 15 years since I've watched it. So for me too, I needed to do some homework. Uh, I did a little bit more than you did because I felt like I wanted to know where things left off at the end of season two, knowing that the formula was uh, to kind of to have a big climactic finale at the end of a season and then a slow build up to whatever's going on, the big arc of the, the, the next season. I mean, this is the same model that Buffy is using at basically exactly the same time. So I did watched the last three episodes of season two as well. And I think that actually was really, really helpful. I should have told you I did that because I did that like two weeks ago. Uh, that would have been something uh, something you do for your podcast partner to help out. But uh, I do think there's merit as well, though, to being a newbie, to being new to this, to have not seen this before, to not have the long uh, context for it, but also maybe not the the nostalgia uh, that uh, that I have and that many people have. You, you're going to look at it with with fresh and, and perhaps critical eyes, which I think will make for a great conversation. Or it will make everybody very mad at me, <laughs> um, <laughs> which which is another possibility. Um, or, you know, best case scenario, I just embarrass myself. I uh, Something I was really struck by watching this was I was trying to put myself in the mindset of like, if you dropped me with no Trek knowledge into, you know, the beginning of a season of, I mean, the obvious comparison here would be Deep Space Nine. Um, And I'd never, I didn't know what any of these aliens were. You know, I I didn't know what a Klingon was. I didn't know what a Ferengi was. I didn't know what Starfleet was. Um, Would I be this confused? Would it feel like there was this much to catch up on? Um, Would I still be able to get something out of the episode um, and and the show in terms of like food for thought or moral value? Um, Because, again, I just I found myself very, very confused. And I 
I want to stand behind Trek and say like, oh, well, the acting might be a little bit better on Deep Space Nine or like the pacing is more digestible on Deep Space Nine. Um, But it was just an interesting moment for me to be like, oh, these universes are really vast. And and what is it like for a brand new viewer to come into them? That is not what our podcast does, but there are lots of podcasts that do exactly this sort of thing. And I'm thinking specifically of Star Trek podcasts, Uh, though there are a lot of Buffy podcasts like this, too, where some veteran viewer has enlisted someone who's never seen the show before to do a podcast to, to have to to watch the thing for the first time and comment it comment on it. Uh, So I guess we're kind of going to model that today. And uh, I will ask you maybe at the end, let's I think let's actually get into the recap uh, and go through our scene by scene. But maybe at the end, I would like to take your pulse on uh, on how you're feeling about it. I mean, you've already spoiled it a little bit by just letting us know that you think Deep Space Nine is a better show, but we are a Star Trek show. So I think it's totally okay for us to say we like the Star Trek show better. I wouldn't go so far as to make any such large generalizations because I've only seen four episodes, so I am I am very aware of that. Um, but, you know, how could we not think about Deep Space Nine when we're thinking about a space station, like, with a promenade and a bar and, like, all those things? Right. Well, these shows, the comparison between these two, there is a long history that that you may be unaware of that I, I will not go into at great length here, but uh, there was a lot of... Um... Uh, I don't know, blood in the water, maybe a lot of animosity uh, among the two different fandoms or between the two different fandoms, because there was a real sense, uh, maybe not sense, there was an accusation that Deep Space Nine ripped off Babylon 5, that uh, J. Michael Straczynski had pitched uh, this space station show uh, to the the network that aired Deep Space Nine, or maybe even had pitched it as a Star Trek show, and they didn't hire him for it. They didn't buy the show, but then went and made their own space station show. I have no idea about the substance of those rumors. And of course, the shows do totally different things and and really end up being, uh, I think, feeling very different, but they also do have a lot of commonalities. And so I think in the 90s, I mean, this was kind of a nerd version of, 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 of gang war, right? That you were in one camp or the other. Um, though I, I watched both shows, so I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe that was just something that was happening on the nascent internet, really. Well, I feel really no. I mean, that sounds entirely plausible. I mean, even just the more I listened to you talk about it, I hadn't realized the spiritual component, right, of both shows. That like, um, there are so many commonalities, and I feel kind of sad to have missed out on on this debate. Um, <laughs> I I want to I want to play the game, but yeah, anecdotally, the like that Deep Space Nine like stole this entire idea seems plausible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it may very well. And I, you know, I don't have any strong feelings about that, especially given that I don't know what the actual evidence is. But, uh, well, let's, uh, let's not get too far afield. Uh, Let's just get into this episode, though. I've got one thing to say. uh, And then I think we should have a discussion uh, about it, which is just to say that the teaser here for this episode begins with a very long establishing shot of the station of Babylon 5. And what I would like to know, Valerie, is how you like the station Babylon 5 compared to Deep Space Nine, just looking at the sort of external aesthetics of it. Oh, you know, I can't answer that question simply, Glenn. Like, <laughs> you're going to have to pull me back on track, like, over and over, I think, this episode. But um, what what I want to do is I want, I have some questions <laughs> about the intro um, to this show. And I think it has become a, a tradition that we talk about the 
the uh, the intro cutscenes and music um, to the shows that that we are reviewing and speaking about. And can you just explain to me, like maybe as a first go, what Babylon Five is like? I understand it's a space station, but I read that Babylon's one through three were like destroyed during construction. And then somebody else destroyed four. And I got to tell you the line, it was our last best hope for peace. And now it's our last best hope for victory. I'm very confused. Like, I mostly just watch shots of Babylon 5 as a station. And I'm like, what is happening? What am I looking at? And I, I find it hard to get past that. Yeah, the, the real difference between Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 as, as physical entities in space uh, is that Deep Space Nine is actually really a space station and Babylon 5 is a city in space, right? The, the population of Deep Space Nine is measured in the hundreds, but the population of Babylon 5 is about a quarter million people. Uh, it's you know, bigger than, than most uh, uh, cities in, in America. And the other difference is institutional, that Deep Space Nine is uh, called Deep Space nine because the federation runs space stations out in deep space and gives them numbers but babylon 5 is meant to be something more like the un headquarters uh out in space and so it's in kind of international territory it is where these ambassadors meet and so it is diplomatically at the center of this um uh, what really amounts to a, a a story about 19th century great game imperialism just set in space uh which is just not at all what what is happening on on deep space nine so some some real differences there both in the physicality of the the station and then also the institutional uh, purpose of the station as well uh, but so that's the idea behind the last best hope for peace is that this was supposed to be the institution that would hold the peace between these competing militaristic empires, uh, but it, it doesn't work because the you know the story of Babylon Five is the story of several different wars uh, over the course of this five year period. Um, though it does end with uh, all of that coming to an end, this is meant to be a kind of a messianic story in which our heroes uh, put an end to all of the great game imperialism politics uh to begin with and really do bring peace and order to the uh the universe uh much more uh, in a much kinder fashion than darth vader wanted to do <laughs> okay that is extremely helpful thank you um there's like a lot of history of this universe that i am missing out on and and you know the the style of learning that you and i like to do and the, and the style of discussion that comes out of that is to really put these shows in some sort of historical context whether that's within their own universe or through that by virtue of a comparison to to ours um and so i find that really grounding in trying to understand to go to your question about like what the space stations look like um they actually both strike me as different iterations of like a LaGrange space station. So I am certainly not the expert in this, um, but of course I have listened to a couple podcasts on it. So that makes me an expert now. Um, <laughs> but there was um, a scientist named Jerry O'Neill um, who uh, he was a physicist and a professor at Princeton. And he basically had the idea to put cities in space um, and decided that they would go in a, in a certain location away from Earth, about 250 miles away from Earth, which is a, a, an area that he called Lagrange point five, um, and then out of this movement, like a lot of uh, O'Neill's students, um, 
with him and also separate from him started designing what these like cities in space what these like lagrange stations at lagrange point five would look like and a lot of them either have the cylindrical design that you see of babylon five or the more like kind of like funky gothic bicycle wheel design that you see (laughs) on deep space nine so i actually saw a commonality um in terms of like you know intellectual context um, or design context between these two space stations. I think my brain has an easier time understanding how a person would live on Deep Space Nine, right? Because it seems to be like up and down and like go sideways in a way that like makes sense that you could walk around in and live in. Whereas something so cylindrical and large like Babylon 5 just feels like a satellite that everybody's floating around in. They even mention when they find this new ship in the beginning of season three that, you know, there's this Trek no Babel discussion. Ba- <laughs> Babylon Babel. Babel Babel. I don't know. Someone make a better. There's, there's a good answer here. Please, please write us and tell us what it is. But they talk about, oh, how does the, you know, artificial gravity work here? Because we still use like rotating plates or something like that. Um, and so I am interested in how that functions. But you know, intuitively, I guess I'm like, how do you live inside that cylinder? Right. It's it's actually that the cylinder is is spinning uh, in order to create gravity, which is you know something that we actually can do. I mean, it's just using physics. It's just using physics to create a centripetal force, uh, so that you you're really always walking on the outside. Though, yeah, it's really hard for us to to spin our heads around this. I mean, there are lots of reasons why uh, people's first experience, and by people I mean astronauts, uh, first experience of being in zero gravity uh, is a lot of barfing. Right. I guess it's it is physically disorienting, but but mentally disorienting as well. But this is one of the things where Babylon Five is is trying to be grounded a little more in uh, in actual. Uh, science, actual physics than Star Trek is, which uh, does, you know, lean hard into the Trekno babble, into the the technology as basically indistinguishable from magic. So, you know, Babylon 5 doesn't have artificial gravity. Uh, on the show, there's no there's no beaming, uh, you know, no 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 teleporting, uh, you know, transporting of, of any kind. Uh, the ammunition is is different. Like the way weapons work is is different as well. It was really modeled to feel a lot more like the 19th century, uh, like 19th century Royal Navy, uh, in fact, uh, than, uh, than anything else. And so that, I think, you know, that is a real distinction between the look and feel of the two shows generally, but then also the stations as well. That really hits on something that I was noticing when I was watching the show, especially as we will eventually get to, Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the death penalty um, and like, you know, systems of of crime and punishment um, in this particular episode. And I was really struck as a comparison to watching Trek, how how Babylon 5 seems to very much so mimic the world we live in now, right? Versus this other future that we've designed some other way that we kind of sit with in Trek. Um, even though, you know, this is taking place uh, in 2260, as the introduction tells me, um, which is not as far ahead as Deep Space Nine, but still far enough away that you would think maybe some of these systems have changed more fundamentally than the small tweaks that that we see. But it's a lot easier to just see like, oh, what we're doing now has just continued kind of linearly into the future in Babylon 5. 
Yeah, I mean, Babylon 5 is the 1990s in space, right? Even everybody's haircut, the costumes, the sets, uh, and everyone's attitudes as well. That's something maybe we can take a look at as we get into the recap. We have been going for like 20 minutes and have yet to really actually uh, at all talk about a character on Babylon 5. So uh, let's do that now. So uh, after we get our long establishing shot of this station, we get Captain Sheridan. He's playing chess with Brother Theo, who is the head of a Christian monastery that recently established itself on Babylon 5. And they're having a conversation while they're doing this, and Sheridan describes himself as religiously eclectic. But Brother Theo uses words like rudderless and adrift. And uh, this idea of religion as something that can help you navigate a difficult situation, as something that might be a rudder, that might help you uh, be, uh, I don't know, navigating rather than adrift, right? This is going to be one of the motifs of this episode. But what really matters in this scene is that Brad Dourif is here. Uh, He's playing Brother Edward, a monk who makes little sculptures to give away to people, and he promises one to Sheridan. Uh, So obviously, uh, my brain not working like your brain and remembering the names of people and things, uh, (laughs) saw saw him and was like, that's the Voyager murderer, man. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, Googled it. And And I just like, does this actor exclusively play murderers? Like, what's happening? Yes, <laughs> yes, because he's also worm tongue. Uh, so he exclusively plays creepy people. And uh, yeah, I mean, the character here and on Voyager are kind of the same character. Yeah. I think this is really, you know, going into that theory that Trek stole a lot of stuff from Babylon <laughs> 5 um, more and more. But um I think there was a part of me at the beginning of the episode that was like, oh, it'll be interesting to see him act a very different character, you know, a religious man who isn't murdering people. Let's see where this goes. And then, and then. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we will get to the end then. So that's the end of the teaser. And so we do get to the opening credits. And you've talked a little bit already, Valerie, about what you, or how you reacted to these, but it is very different from opening credits we normally get from Star Trek, right? There's uh, this voiceover. Uh, how did you feel about the the music? I thought the music was really good. Like I enjoyed it. It was fun. I I, I do want to ask you a quick question. Does the intro change every season? It it does. Yeah, the voiceover changes, and who does it changes every season as okay. well. And it kind of gives the theme of the of the season. So uh, when you picked up, when you you know you've just watched these episodes in season three. So the first episode of season three, your first exposure to the voiceover and the opening credits, uh, that's something that we fans would have been looking forward to uh, coming into uh, when this episode aired or when these when the season started. Was what's going to be the new voiceover and who's going to deliver it and what is that going to tell us about what is to come, right? There's, uh, you know, plot points kind of embedded in that, right? The, the idea that it failed. So we know that this is going to be an intense season that's going to involve uh, interstellar, inter-imperial war of, of some sort. And it's the sort of thing that uh, season two especially has been building towards. And so it was very exciting to hear that voiceover uh, in that first episode back in 1995. I bet. I can see as a fan, like I'm really starting to see more and more um, as we dialogue about this, just like how fun and exciting this show would have been 
by virtue of its complication, right? By virtue of how much is going on um, and all of that, that history and backstory and context. And as a brand new viewer, this is a lot of information that is weirdly vague to be getting in an intro um, to the point <laughs> that when I first watched it, I didn't know I was watching an intro. I thought maybe I was watching like a recap of something um, or I didn't totally understand. So there's just like a it's dense. It's information dense um, and voiceover dense compared to a lot of shows that that um, you would typically watch, right? It's not just like a song and some images. Um, the thing that I I just couldn't stop laughing. I was really struck by the way the characters are flashed on screen with their images oh, yeah. and their names. It just reminded me of playing like, you know, Star Fox um, on my N64 or something. It just really felt like a video game introduction. And actually the music that is the background um, to the intro made me think of like the Fortnite memes that are going around. I don't know if you're familiar, but like when you choose a character in Fortnite, like your character stands there and kind of sways a little bit um, and you can click through and it's like a new character, different outfit and it sways a little bit. And so people have started recording videos of themselves pretending to be um, the Fortnite characters um, and like doing the little sway and like changing costumes and stuff. And it felt like that's what I was watching as the characters cycled through the screen. And there was that like kind of repetitive background, like choose your character. That's what I want to say. It's like this, it's felt like choose your character music in a video game. It is very 90s. Uh, I think actually Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager are kind of aberrations for the way that 90s TV credits were normally done and that we are just getting, hey, look at the space station from different angles or look at Voyager flying through the rings of this planet while uh, Jerry Goldsmith composes the heck out of this uh, this this opening theme. But, uh, you know, thinking like about what like Buffy and Angel do, for example, right, they make sure that we do see clips of all of the characters as the credits are going and the name of the actor who plays that character is over an image of the character and this dials that up maybe you know to ten and a half or so and that we've actually got you know to telling us sort of who the characters are giving us their names because it is trying to give you information because even though I, I did say earlier that Babylon 5 is super important for how we get to things like Stranger Things or just you know the prestige TV the serialized TV that we have today that expects that you are going to binge it or that you are at least going to start from episode one and go through episode 10 and and then start the next season. This was still TV that you had to catch when it aired, uh, I think, on Thursday nights at eight, or you just didn't watch that episode. And so it had to catch people up who missed it, uh, missed the previous episode, uh, or had to actually serve as the first episode of Babylon 5 that someone might watch, help them understand what's going on so that they'll want to come back for 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 more because you couldn't just decide oh, I've heard good things about Babylon 5 I guess I'll start watching that show from the beginning by the time you've heard good things about Babylon 5 we were probably halfway through season 3 and so you just had to jump in and so these credits are designed to help you out a little bit though I'm not sure how helpful they really were I mean they were maybe minimally helpful oh I mean I, it was just more confusion because there's so many characters <laughs> and, you know, it's hard to remember their names when you're not familiar with them because there are so many. And yeah, it was really interesting. You know, season three opens with a very dense episode where I was just like more confused than I feel like I've ever been. Like I, I needed, even when I read plot recaps of season two, I was like, I still don't understand. Um, there were so many things secret things going on and like you know dynamics between the different species and characters that and it moved so quickly that I was just like 
oh my gosh, is this what this show is like? I How will I ever keep up with anything? And then episodes two, three, and four were very kind of standalone episodic, very mm-hmm, different. Mm-hmm. Like you really didn't need the context in the same way. Obviously, it adds more richness to understand like the the history between the Minbari and humans or the history between the Narn and the Centauri. But like you didn't need it. But in that first episode, you you really needed it. And that's the formula, of course, right, is to to use the, the first episode of the season as a bridge from the last season for the big story arc, and then to give us some, uh, some you know, guest actor of the week episodes, you know, what we would call monster of the week episodes when we're talking about Buffy, uh, and then to, but to be seeding some of the long season story arc into those episodes, and then to gradually pick up the, the, the pace. And in fact, in this episode, there are some, uh, some story arc things, some big, long story arc things that are going on, and that's that's actually where we start after the opening credits, where we're in Sheridan's office and the, the telepath Lita Alexander is back. And on top of that, what's really more important is that she has returned to the station with Kosh, the mysterious ambassador of the mysterious Vorlons. And uh, Lita is going to matter a little bit to the plot of this episode, but but maybe only a very little bit, really. And this stuff is here for the ongoing story arc that's uh, the Shadow War story arc, uh, in which telepaths and Vorlons are going to play a very big deal. Uh, so with that said, I think we can actually just move right into the second scene, which is really where the story of Brother Edward uh, picks up. And Brother Edward is the main character of this episode, which, you know, y- you recognize that immediately because you're like, yes, Br- if Brad Dourif is here, he's the main character of this episode. Uh, so what's going on in this scene is that Brother Edward is talking with a potential customer for the monastery's data transfer business. And this business is what his monastic order does now. Instead of uh, transcribing and illuminating manuscripts, which is what they did, he says, a thousand years ago. It means, you know, in the Middle Ages. And they use the proceeds, uh, the money that they get for doing this, in order to fund their main activity on the station, which is to learn all the names and faces of God from our non-human brothers. And when Edward gets up, a black rose falls from his bag. He doesn't know how it got there, but he certainly didn't put it in his bag. And uh, that's the first beat in what is going to be the plot. But right now, it's just a nice little tease. And so when I'm you know, watching this for the first time, and I don't know, maybe this was uh, what drew you in as well, Valerie, but what I was really interested in this scene was not the weird black rose that shows up out of nowhere, but in this names and faces of God business. And, and I don't think it's ever really going to be spelled out in this episode, but it suggests to me that these monks believe that all religions are aspects of the same thing, uh, that there is a God that has revealed itself in different ways to different peoples, and that learning those different ways, learning about those revelations, is itself a form of religious devotion. And to me, really, this was one of the hallmarks of Babylon 5's 90s-ness. I mean, I remember this being a huge part of pop culture, uh, something that maybe got wiped out or at least overshadowed by 9-11, which I think changed our attitudes about religion and about uh, maybe comparative religion as well. But that was really what drew me into this scene. Yeah, I mean, it's so my brain is really attuned to like the smaller things as well. You know, like in the the scene where we first meet Brother Edward, I noticed that they're playing um, not tri-dimensional chess. They're just playing regular <laughs> chess, right? Um, and um, and also I, Brad Dorif's or Brother Edward's uh, little 
what are like plastic sculptures or whatever are not that good. I don't know why it's like such a big plot point that he makes these like beautiful ornate things. It's just like some plastic glued together poorly. I don't I don't understand. Um, and, and it's hard for me to get past you know the details like that. I agree that the point you've raised is really fascinating. Um, and also kind of in in line with with your current career, my former career, a really like intellectual way of engaging with faith of like wanting to study how this, um, you know, how God presents themselves across the universe and across alien species, rather than just having these monks and this order on the station to convert people, right, which I feel like would have been an easy plot point to write in. And I think it's cool that they didn't do that. Um, And we'll talk about this more when we get to the, the interview scene later. But I actually was just really fascinated with the detail of we have to earn money somehow in order to fuel our work and to fuel our order and to sustain ourselves and and what we want to do in the world and look at how we have adapted over time to generating that income. I thought that was I want to know more about the history of like the different jobs that they have taken on through time as an order. And I thought the comparison to, you know, being scribes and illuminating manuscripts was fascinating. Right. I mean, the question we ask is, okay, but what were you doing in the 1990s or, you know, the 2020s, right? Uh, Because this is we don't have data transfer this way. I mean, also, of course, right, this is pretty 90s. This is in the nascent years of the digital revolution. It maybe didn't quite see the way that was really going to be going. But I guess it is kind of cool, right, that they are, uh, you know, Straczynski was trying to imagine that these monks would uh, would have tech jobs, right? <laughs> that they'd work in the tech industry, the, the data industry, because that's uh, that's what they have always done. And that's what that's going to look like, really, you know, in the 2000s, and especially in the, the 2260s, which I, I think is true. But yeah, I'm with you. I would like to know the whole history of it. And it is also interesting too, right? That the this order, we don't ever get a name of this order, but here Brad Dourif, who I'm I'm always, I'm gonna struggle to call him by his character name. I think <laughs> you are too. Uh but Brother Edward clearly indicates in this scene that this order has been in continuous existence for a thousand years and potentially longer than that, but for a minimum of a thousand years. And uh so that means, you know, the twelve sixties or so. And the thirteenth century was actually a time when uh new orders of of monasteries new monastic orders were being founded like crazy. Like there just were a bazillion of them that were founded in the 13th century. So, you know, totally plausible, I suppose, but we don't ever get a name. Like Straczynski hasn't picked out a particular order for this to be, and we don't learn anything really of their history. But it is a bit strange that they would still be in existence. There are very few of them that were founded in the 13th century that are still in existence. Though, you know, there are some big ones, uh, like the Dominicans and the the Franciscans. I I guess maybe those are properly late 12th century, but uh, I can elide a few decades there. But those are still (laughs) with us. But for the most part, they they aren't with us anymore. Uh, and so that's interesting to me as well. I want. I also. I just want to know, like, what alcohol are they making? Like, do not right. tell me <laughs> that these monks like don't have a secret alcohol recipe that they still make and sell because that is like a delicious and like time honored tradition of generating income for orders. <laughs> yes, and you and I have a long personal history with uh, monastic liquor, uh, whether that's our, our our beer drinking trip to Belgium uh, or the fact that uh, we just love the heck out of chartreuse, which um, uh, I don't think either of us made a cocktail for this episode because we're going to play Smooch Mary Kill at the end, but uh, maybe we dropped the ball on, on, on making a cocktail that's only uh, monastic liquors. 
I think it's still something we can explore with listeners on the forum. That would be a fun, a fun thing to do. But yeah, I mean, and there's a bar. There were a lot of opportunities uh, to to take our usual uh, fun and uh, cocktail fun and plug it in here. And also, I'm now starting to wonder if once I'm out of Star Trek for my plants in Star Trek Instagram account, I'm going to have to do a plants in Babylon 5 Instagram account because there's lots of plants. Oh, yes. Yes. Lots of plants. And it's because the set that's uh, the sets that they were using for uh, Babylon 5 were basically just two rooms. And so they had to redress them all the time. And uh, just moving plants around was a way to 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 make the same room look like it could be 25 actual distinct rooms on the, the station. So dip, so please, yes, do a Plants in Babylon 5 uh, Instagram account when you are done with Star Trek. Though you've got a lot to go with Star Trek still, too. And especially since uh, Star Trek is just going to keep coming. There's going to be so much new Star Trek in the future. Uh, let's get to the second scene here, or the next scene here, anyway, where we're in uh, security. Uh, Delenn, Ambassador Delenn, needs something from Garibaldi. But what she needs, what it is, the specifics don't matter because we're really here just to learn about mind wipes. And this is more formally known as death of personality. This is something that has replaced the death penalty on Earth. Uh, The idea is that you can completely erase a criminal's personality and then install a new one into the now empty brain. Uh, This is supposed to be a kinder, gentler personality, something uh, or, or someone who will be devoted to community service. And the idea here, right, this is meant to be more humane than executing somebody. But Garibaldi does not like this. He actually wishes that they still had executions. He longs for the days of the electric chair, he says. In fact, he wants electric bleachers. Uh, Delenn, as a Minbari, of course, is quietly appalled by this and uh, uh, calmly suggests that an eye for an eye just creates a society of blind people. Uh, And this is going to be another theme of the episode, right? Really the central theme here, right? What is the difference between justice and vengeance? Wow. Garibaldi in this scene. I mean, I can't. I I had a hard time here. I was like, it's 2260 and we're saying this? (laughs) Like, it threw me a little bit. And it was definitely one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is so different than the Trek universe where like, we've, we've transformed our model of justice, right? In the Trek universe. And that has not happened here. No, it definitely has not. But this is, I think, one of these points where, one of these places where, as you were saying earlier, Babylon 5 is really the 1990s. It's the 1990s set in space because, right, in the 1990s, the death penalty was a massive political issue. And so Straczynski is, I think, doing due diligence here by giving us a character who expresses a viewpoint that, uh, you know, about half of Americans uh, would have agreed with in the 1990s. I don't think that's true now. We have gotten rid of the death penalty almost everywhere in the United States, with a few exceptions, uh, a few places that are exceptions, but then even the conditions under which are also exceptional now. So this has been a cultural change of the last 30 25 years. But, you know, giving a writing a character into this episode who can represent a big chunk of what would have been the viewing audience, I think, was a a responsible thing to do in a story that's trying to get us to ask this question, to ask whether the death penalty is a good idea, and also to ask whether death of personality is a good idea, and to think about what do we mean by justice? What do we mean by vengeance? What is it we're actually trying to accomplish when we impose some kind of punishment or or penalty on someone who has committed a, a, a crime? And you know, once we have established what we're trying to accomplish to think about what is the best method for that, right? And this was a a pretty big part of uh, ideas about criminal justice reform in the 1990s. 
Right. I mean, as much as 2020 Valerie watching this show um, was kind of appalled by what came out of Garibaldi's mouth, particularly the electric bleachers, um, which was a pretty in- intense and evocative um, statement um, or turn of phrase. I was also struck in this scene by, especially in comparison to the other couple of episodes that I had watched, which didn't seem to have such heavy handed themes. I was like, oh, we're going to get a debate. We're going to learn a lesson. We're going to think through something that is a contemporary issue. Um, and that, you know, people today, like there has been a cultural change, but not so much so that, you know, there aren't still people who who think like Garibaldi um, in, you know, some sort of significant numbers. So I also saw this as a signal that we were going to get to go explore a heavy and important question. And I got really excited. Yeah, and I think the episode does a good job of that, though maybe doesn't handle it in the the same way that a Star Trek episode would. And that's that's something we can talk about when we get to the end. Uh, before I move us on to the next scene, though, I want to make a little note about the, the history of the future here, which I guess we've been doing throughout already. But wow, it really stood out to me that Garibaldi has to wait for something to come on TV and then has to shush Delenn so he can watch it live, right? The idea that like you can't just go to the internet and watch the clip of this show later whenever you feel like or you know just go to social media and find out what's going on in this this trial that you're uh you're interested in uh it just really really jumped out to me as being like one of the most dated things in the show yeah no that's i that's really fair i hadn't picked up on that detail of like why he would be shushing her because i just imagined that this was available some some other way but yeah, just like watching live TV nowadays, even though we can still go look it up later. Yeah, and there is a, a running thing with Garibaldi. Garibaldi is one of my favorite characters uh, on the, the show, the electric bleachers comment notwithstanding. He's a big baseball fan. Specifically, he's a big Dodgers fan. But I don't remember because I didn't see any of that in the seven episodes that I watched to prepare to do this show today. Uh, I don't remember how he gets access to the Dodgers games as they're being played on Earth. I, but I, I think he actually maybe gets sent like uh, physical videotapes from time to time, but mostly is just following it in like an actual print newspaper uh, that he gets. So I don't know, some really interesting stuff there. Uh, that's just making me really want to go do more Babylon 5 episodes. And I don't know, maybe in the 2030s, we can uh, start a Babylon 5 show. Well, uh, <laughs> let's before I start com- committing us to that, uh, let's actually move to the next scene. Really, it's two scenes with uh, Lita Alexander. Uh, again, these are, are largely for the long-term arc of the season. They do, though, give us some information that we need for this story. Uh, the first of these is in Med Lab, where Dr. Franklin does a physical and finds that Lita's got a number of conditions and injuries that have just disappeared seemingly by magic. Uh, and then Lita runs into Londo, uh, Ambassador Londo Malari, the Centauri, in a corridor, and he wants to pay her for information about the Vorlon homeworld. Ultimately, this descends into some mutual threatening of each other, but the key information that that we need, the key information that we learn, is that Lita is no longer in the Psycor, uh, so she is no longer constrained by any rules. Okay. Do you see what I mean, though, with the rhyming? Like, I don't even know <laughs> if I could repeat back, but, like, the 
Minari of the Centauri, but then there's also Minbari. Like, what is happening? Yeah, yes, it's true. Yeah, everything sounds kind of vaguely Italian, doesn't it? <laughs> well, and then we have Garibaldi. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never picked up on that before. Uh, something I wanted to tell you, Valerie, because I, I it didn't show up in any of the episodes that you watched to prepare the, for this. Um, but you know, well, for one, hey, there's telepaths in this show. That's a thing that's very different from uh, from most Star Trek. Uh, but the other thing is that this Psychor um, is uh, the head of the Psychor is a character called. Al- Alfred Bester, who's actually named after uh, a, a really important uh, science fiction novelist of the, the 1950s. But more importantly for us is that he's played by Walter Koning, he's played by Chekhov, uh, which is just amazing when Chekhov walks into this this TV show. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking about all these details and wondering, you know, again, I keep wondering like, oh, people who are subjected to me, like talking about Star Trek all the time, does it sound this silly to them as it, <laughs> as, as as the concept of like med lab sounds to me? Like I, I keep laughing at these names, but I'm like, well, sick bay is med lab. But right. I mean, like, why does one sound normal, not the other? And like, um, you know, thinking about the contrast between Earth Alliance and United Federation of Planets. Um, and, but I will say I still don't totally understand the League of Non-Aligned Planets or something like that. But whatever. I have a lot of Babylon 5 studying to do. But I am just struck by like the 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 nomenclature <laughs> that the show uses. Yes. Well, all because all of it is so self-consciously, we're not Star Trek, except that we have a lot of the same things that Star Trek has. And so there's no way for us as people who are watching Star Trek all the time and spending hours talking about it and engaging with listeners about it on the forums that we can't hear these things and just think that it's kind of like you know bobo star trek right that it's just not star trek that it's 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 kind of like a parody of star trek and so that does kind of make some of it seem silly and it's struggle it was a struggle for me to say medlab i started to say sickbay there because you know just the, the little notes that i have in my outline don't really um you say anything about that it just says dr franklin you know and so i was i just almost called it sickbay because that's what that place is called but all right let's uh let's get back to the main attraction here which is brother edward So he gets off the elevator and he bumps into a Centauri who conspicuously touches him. Uh, But don't worry about that right now. In Edward's quarters, someone has written, Death Walks Among You on his wall. And it's in blood. So he goes and gets Garibaldi, but the writing is gone by the time that Garibaldi can look at it. Uh, So maybe it was just a trick of the light or something. But Garibaldi is definitely going to check it out with his CSI team and he'll get back to Brother Edward. And that is going to come back, but not now. So let's just zip right into the next scene as this is one that I really love. So Edward goes to visit Delenn and Lanier. He's going to interview them about Minbari religion. This is the thing they are doing on the, the station, his monastic orders doing on the station. And the, the first half of this scene is a pretty lengthy pair of monologues about Minbari cosmology that I think are just really cool, really interesting. The The gist of it is that in Minbari cosmology and, and, and in their religious tradition, the universe itself is conscious, uh, though in a way that you know, we could never fully understand. But the, the universe is engaged in a quest for meaning, and so it breaks itself apart and then inserts the pieces of itself into every form of life. This is what souls are. And Delenn here says that we are the universe trying to understand itself. And 
this again, right? This is, I, I think, maybe a, a type of panentheism. This also was a real hallmark of 1990s spirituality. This is something that Brent and I see a lot of on our, our Neil Gaiman show as well when we're covering stuff in the 1990s. This idea that uh, all religions are kind of part of the same thing, that we're all spiritually, sort of numinously, mystically connected to the same thing, that the that God is just kind of the universe and that that exists in each of us in some part. Uh, this felt very 1990s to me. Even listening to you re-explain the scene just now, I was actually struck by how, like, uh, I was making a comparison to Q in my head <laughs> of, like, how Q, you know, like, is trying to understand humans by embodying them. Um, and this this theme of, like, living as one of something is a way to, like, better understand it, right? And in these these fictitious you know space universes we get to play with that we get to have characters that can fully embody or or pass or change shape um in order to like share a lived experience of something and and it's a really cool idea that i have enjoyed thinking about just as a human in the world in 2020 of how different intellectual experience and like lived experience of something can be and the gap that will always exist between them if you can't have both. Um, so that's what I thought was really cool about this idea of the universe trying to better understand itself by embodying itself in different ways and seeing what those experiences can lend to its understanding. Well, and this is the the Christ story as well, and that's where this is going to connect with Brother Edward and Brother Theo, right? The the idea that uh, God wanted to understand what it means to be human, what it's like to exist in the creation from the perspective of the created uh, sentient being. So became one, uh, or in some way anyway, became one. There's a lot of theological complexity uh, to, to that, uh, but to understand human suffering. And so, yeah, it's interesting to see them in Bari having a kind of a, a similar idea, the one that's, that's, I think, phrased and framed maybe quite a bit differently, but I think there's a lot here for Brother Edward to not just kind of nod with anthropological interest, but to actually recognize as being a part of his own faith. Uh, and his own faith is where we are going to go next. Though before we do that, I actually want to say one more thing, because it's just occurred to me that uh, Brent and I, on our Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King, are actually going to be doing another episode of Babylon 5. Uh, that's going to be a few months, might even be close to a year away. Uh, but that's a season five episode called Day of the Dead, which we are doing because Neil Gaiman wrote it, and this was something that our Patreon supporters have uh, have asked us to do or, or told us they would like us to do. So I've lost track of sort of where the schedule overlaps are, are happening. But, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, you can uh, uh, check that out. I'll try to remember to say something on this show when that actually airs. But uh, let's get to Brother Edward's religious journey here. That's the, the other part of this conversation, and it's what's really going to matter for this story arc. So uh, Delenn wants to understand the emotional core of Edward's religious devotion, right? Why is he a monk? And for him, it is the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane before Christ's arrest and, and then his eventual crucifixion. And Edward describes this as a moment of choice for Christ, that Christ knew he was going to be arrested and, and also then tortured to death, and that he had time to escape, that he could have run away from this. And that Christ did consider this. Uh, he prayed for this cup to pass him by, is what the text says, and, and what Brother Edward says here. But in the end, he chose to die, and he knew that his brutal death was going to mean salvation for the rest of humanity, for like every person. And so he chose to go through with it, even though it was something that 
on a, on a personal level, he did not want to do, did not want to die, did not want to be tortured to death. And for Edward, this was a really fragile and really human moment. And I think especially if we are thinking about Christ as someone who is a part of God living in the creation to see what the creation is like, this is a moment in which that entity is being extremely human. And so Edward has always wondered if he would be able to make the same choice if he were put in that situation. And of course, he's he's going to get to find out, right? At the end of this episode, that's what's going to happen here. And and so therefore, right, this is the emotional core, not just of Edward's devotion, but it's the emotional core of this episode. And this is really heavy. All of this is quite heavy, but I thought Brad Dourif just nailed this speech here. And it's really important because the whole episode hinges on his ability to deliver these lines really well. Oh, he's an amazing actor. Um, he, he plays like intense, thoughtful, creepy, problematic man very, very well. Right? Like, I feel like, you know, even on Voyager, his character is a thinker um, in, a, in a lot of ways um, and has a similar like redemption arc as well, um, which is something that was in my mind as I watched this episode play out of like learning from your past mistakes and then using that for good in some way. Though here on this episode of Babylon 5, he is learning using like his journey to learn more about his internal self, right? This is more about the question of not like, how can I have lived my best life to have helped the most people given what I have done? But like, what can I learn about my own sense of courage um, and how I feel changed in a, in a more personal internal way? Yeah, because the the ending here, I mean, we'll, we'll jump ahead a little bit, but the, the ending here is, is that Brother Edward is going to feel like he should die, like he deserves to die, like he needs to be punished rather than that he ought to continue living and continue doing good, that he he feels that he needs to redeem himself through through death rather than redeem himself through works. Uh, that is something I want to talk about when we get to the end of the episode. Uh, I think that's a great uh, comparison here. We probably should just go do the that, that Voyager episode, right? Like, in fact, maybe we'll try to do it in such a way that we can schedule these uh, to go out on the main podcast uh, close together. That would be a lot of fun to do. Well, on his way back to his quarters, Edward has another hallucination. Uh, this one is the, the the murder of a young woman. Death walks among you is on the wall again, but but now he hears voices calling him Charlie, and they say you killed her. And uh, a lot of this is filmed as a flashback. We even see Edward with a, a goatee cutting a black rose. Uh, you know, the goatees, how you know he's another person there. But wow, did that that scream bad 90s choices. I had a goatee in the 90s too. So, you know. Oh, well, what does that tell us about you, Glenn? <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, I guess it was technically the year 2000 because that's when I got out of the army and was allowed to have facial hair again. But, you know, close enough. Well, we, uh, we come out of the flashback and we find Edward in his quarters. It's the next morning and Brother Theo is there waking him up, waking Edward up, because Edward has missed morning prayer. He tells Theo what's going on. What he says is that he's remembering things he never did. And Theo just tells him to ignore these memories, to to not to try to remember anything more, to just leave that alone. And he seems almost panicked about it. And of course, we, you know, an audience who have watched a lot of science fiction TV shows before, I think we've probably put together what's going on by this point, that Edward was once a murderer named Charlie, but then he was mind wiped and now he has brother Edward. 
but Charlie is coming back. And when he's alone, Edward decides to Google what he knows about Charlie, but it's going to take four hours to get the results. Uh, so at this point, Valerie, I, I don't know about you, but at this point, I was certain that Edward was going to, he was going to end up killing someone on this station. I thought for sure that that's where this was going, that he was going to become this serial killer again. I don't think that's where my mind went. Um there's a lot of tension, right, built up in, like, this four-hour window. Like, <laughs> the idea that in 2260 it takes four hours to Google something is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, like, even Trek had that right where the computer just gives you the answer right away. <laughs> um, but uh, it does build in this, like, what's going to happen then in, like, the next four hours, maybe. Um, even though um, in the actual plot of the episode that that tension doesn't really start happening until after he finds out what is going on four hours from now. Um, but I, I thought maybe he would be apprehended in some way or, um, maybe that he would hurt himself, but I didn't get the sense that we were going to get another murder on the station. I wasn't particularly worried about that. I think that I had picked up on the fact that the, the brother Edward character, um, had become or was in this iteration of himself not the kind of character that would do that. Like, I was taking the tension between who he is now and who he used to be to mean that we were going to get some sort of story arc about how who he is now is a is a bigger part of him than who he used to be, even if there is, like, a reemergence of that old part. So that's where I was kind of thinking that the show would go. Yeah, and I guess I thought Garibaldi was going to play a bigger role in this episode than he than he really does, and so uh, my mind went back to Garibaldi's uh, electric bleachers comment and thought that this was going to have to actually be a story about Garibaldi's uh, arc in relationship to his feelings about capital punishment, which it totally is not. And this is a better episode than the one that you know watching this episode live in 1995 that I thought it was going to be when we went to commercial break after this uh, after this scene. <laughs> um, yeah, I there's a couple other things that that I just want to like offhand mention um, as silly commentary. One is from from several scenes ago. This idea that Garibaldi thinks that blood that was on the wall in writing could have been a trick of the light, like. Man. That's not a thing that happens. You don't. The light doesn't shine weird, and then you see blood writing, like. It just is a pretty poor explanation. But what really also stood out to me in this more recent scene where brother Theo is talking to brother Edward and trying to kind of console him, I guess, um, is that he does a really bad job of it. Like, as someone who's profession it is to be a healer and to console and to love before all other things um he really failed as like a mental health professional here he's being extremely invalidating of brother edward's concerns like the idea that someone's like i think i might have maybe been a murderer and someone's like don't worry about it just like don't think about that that's fine (laughs) it's like not the route i would take as a listener and i i get that you know brother theo is trying to protect um, himself trying to protect brother Edward from probably the pain of this knowledge because he he has a little bit more information than brother Edward does at this time. But I just was like, this is not how you talk to somebody who's going through this. Right. I think what we're seeing here, because the actor, I don't know who the actor is who played Brother Theo, but he nails it. He does an amazing job. I I think what he's trying to show us, uh, what he's trying to sell to us, the audience, is that he himself is panicked 
by this. And so he's not able to minister to Brother Edward in this moment because he himself is just waiting to race to the next scene because he has deduced what we have as well. And he's really just thinking about what are the next steps and that something more dramatic than simply comforting Brother Edward is going to have to be done, right? That if if it does turn out that Brother Edward has been mind wiped, as he definitely suggests, or as he or suspects rather, as we're going to find out in the next scene, that the mind wipe is going to have to be done over again or something. And so it's maybe a matter of like, how quickly can we get him to that? And if I can tell him just to not think about those memories, maybe that will, you know, or if he doesn't think about those memories anyway, that maybe that will slow the pace of the the, the damage and make things easier. But it, it's interesting to see that his priorities are are really different from what we would expect them to be. Well, let's let's move into that next scene, which is taking place in the station garden, by the way. So there's like a lot here for your uh, Plants in Babylon 5 Instagram. The garden is actually one of my favorite sets in uh, in all of Babylon 5. So uh, Brother Theo is here to ask Captain Sheridan to use his official powers to look into Brother Edward and this business with Charlie so that Theo can know how to proceed, really know how to help Edward. Uh, because if it turns out that he has indeed been mind wiped and he's figuring it out, then a lot of bad stuff is going to happen. And this scene is largely here to explain to the audience what is going on, I think, in case they didn't pick it up from the context clues. But I do think that it says something interesting about Theo without really spelling it out, which is that Theo doesn't feel any disgust or any revulsion at learning that Edward was once a violent criminal. He, he feels pity for him. He wants to help him. He fears for Edward's life and Edward's sanity. And as far as we can see, he doesn't even wrestle with this, right? He goes immediately to this pitiful and compassionate response, which I'm not sure would be the immediate reaction that I would have. I mean, I would want it to be, like that's who I would wish to be, but I think that I would have a, a lot of discomfort and, and, and fear uh, learning that, that I would have to talk to myself about making myself perform, making myself behave the way that I think is the ethically right way to behave. But for Theo, this just seems like this is just his first nature. It's his first response. I want to talk about this more when we get to the end of the episode, but I think precisely because of that impulse that I notice rise within me of like forgiveness being more difficult, it almost makes, there's this moment where I'm like, the forgiveness doesn't make sense. The forgiveness is hard to access. So what's going on with Brother Theo? He must be weird too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it turns out just the way he's weird, he's incredibly compassionate. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's funny to see those, like, the way that even Theo's compassion coming up against the way that I've been socialized in this world makes me then suspicious of Brother Theo, right? Um which is like, whoa, Brian, whoa. Yeah, that's a really interesting read. It's not one that 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 I had because I, you know, I guess to me, you know, I do spend a lot of time reading saints' lives, reading hagiographies from the Middle Ages, and so uh, Theo seemed to me to be really modeled on something like uh, Saint Francis. Um, maybe not explicitly. I mean, he's not like talking to birds or anything, but to have this this compassion towards uh, people who are are suffering and to want to help those who are suffering, he really just was exuding that. To, to me, I guess, I don't know, it's like, uh, uh, it's almost like he was cast from my imaginations about St. Francis. 
for me, it was more like maybe Brother Theo is like secretly building an order of like creepy people and something is going to happen here, um, which is like not my higher self. That is my lower self. Right. That it's like those are like the first thoughts in my brain that are, you know, reasoned with and dismissed. Um, it is not my actual opinion. But, you know, I think it's important to try to cultivate that capacity to watch what comes up for you automatically and then think about like where that weird thought might have come from. Right. And I think it comes from the place where it was difficult for for me to extend that forgiveness or to conceptualize this. Yeah. And that is what's going on in this episode. We're supposed to be facing that aspect of ourselves. We're supposed to be taking a look at ourselves and asking these questions. Also, I would would watch that show for sure. I would watch (laughs) that TV show. Well, we are uh, next thing. We're we're in Edward's quarters where Garibaldi's team has determined that there wasn't any blood in Edward's quarters, which uh, does not surprise Edward now because he realizes that this is all happening in his head. It wasn't a trick of the light because that is dumb, as you pointed out, Valerie. But it was (laughs) happening. That's what I said. His head. And uh, alone again now, his his Google search is finally complete. I don't have this level of patience. Uh, but yep, he definitely was Charles Dexter, also known as the Black Rose Killer. He killed nine women, at least nine women, nine women that are accounted for. And we, we more or less knew this already, uh, but something that I never noticed before, even though I have seen this episode at least three times prior to prepping for this show, is the full name Charles Dexter. Uh, this is a nod to the H.P. Lovecraft novel, the, the Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which also involves a question of identity, uh, a question of who is the personality in this body, which uh, I just had never noticed that before. It was a nice little uh, Easter egg there. Uh, but now Theo arrives to help, and uh, Edward just doesn't want to be consoled, right? He actually wants to be punished, right? Now that he knows who he is and he remembers the things that he's done, he wants to be punished. He says, do you know what it's like to wake up and discover you're a murderer? How can I confess my sins to God if I don't even know what they are? And he claims that even though his mind and personality are new, he still has the same soul and that that soul is stained with sin. But this is not the way Theo sees it. For Theo, God knows what your sins are, even if you don't know what they are, right? God knows. And God can and does forgive them, even if you are unaware of what they are. But Edward is just not convinced by this. He says there must be justice, right? That's that's the attitude that he's got here. Uh, and again, Brad Durf is just nailing the pathos in this scene. I am full of pity for Edward, uh, and I'm doing what we're supposed to do with literature like this, right? We've been talking about, we're wondering, you know, about our own responses. I, In particular, at this point, I'm wondering how I would fare in this situation. And I find all of this quite moving. I didn't quite cry, but I was close to it in this scene. This scene is so good. I think it for me, it's the best scene in the episode. Um, I thought it was shot in a really cool way, especially because I don't even fully understand. I mean, Brother Edward's not like behind bars. He's not locked up. There's just like something in between them while they have this conversation. But it gives that uh, uh, like a aesthetic, that appearance as if Brother Edward is behind bars and having this conversation with Brother Theo. And then the way like whatever that piece of architecture that is between them kind of... Um, shapes Edward's face as we look at him through it, right? Like the parts of him that we we don't see um, really adds like a, a level of of movement, right? Of like to get to that pathos that you're talking about. Like it really compels the emotional bits of the scene to have him obscured in the darkness and the light in the scene. I thought it was incredibly well thought of from a cinematic perspective. And, you know, I am I'm not a religious person. And 
that can lead me sometimes to shy away from scenes like this where ostensibly they are about um, about faith, right? Um, and sometimes there's something that comes up in me that is like a little bit like, okay, I don't know if this is what I'm here to watch. And and even with that um, that bias that I hold, I found this scene incredibly compelling. And I found myself like you trying to put my pla- myself in the place of Edward and to imagine how comforting it would be to hear, it's okay that you don't know everything you did. Like someone else does know and they still forgive you anyway. I was like, there was some, that line in particular just moved me in a way that I wasn't expecting that like, even when you are struggling with it, you will be forgiven. It will be okay. Like, there is something for you on the other side. You can move on. You don't have to punish yourself forever. Yeah, my heart really just breaks for Edward in this whole episode because it, it's it's it is going to end with his death. Uh, I think we can we can go ahead and, and, and advertise that. We can go ahead and uh, uh, telegraph that a- ahead of time. And it just. I want something different for him, right? In this moment, I want him to listen to Theo. I want him to hear what Theo is saying and to believe it. Uh, because I think what Theo is saying, one, I mean, it just feels true to me, but it is also a theologically grounded in the religion that they practice to, together, right? That they, they are involved in, that they are monks in. But he just can't hear that, even though he himself has potentially said something similar to other people, that he has studied the the text and the practices of their religion uh, for, you know, at least the last few years, I guess, that he has been Edward. He can't internalize that, that in this moment of, of shock and revelation and, and horror, right, that all of that goes away for him. And I really wish that he could hear it again. I wish that he could have been reached. And it's so heartbreaking to know that this is not going to end well, despite Theo's best efforts, Theo's best attempts, and and his own profound compassion. In listening to you just now, I, I think I, I am better understanding what what was so moving for, for me or how I was able to so personally connect with this scene, which is that you know, something um, I joke about with colleagues often in the mental health profession is that we treat what we have, um, that we often like come to be a therapist or a social worker because we had some sort of experience in our life where someone anomalously helped us and we want to be that person or no one was around to help us and we want to be the person that wasn't there, you know, so that somebody else doesn't have to go through the same thing. And then, you know, as a person who struggles with my own anxiety and then talks to other people all day about the the wisdom of, of you know, how to help yourself um, if you are struggling with anxiety and the fact that at the end of the day, it's still hard for me to be an anxious person. And that I felt compelled to this profession that in some ways was part of my own personal journey of healing. And that just really stands out to me now that I think about that in this scene of the way that even though Edward was probably drawn to this in some ways because of his past and might have said these things, the same things Brother Theo is telling him to other people, that it's an entirely different thing when you are grappling with it yourself. And you really do need that other voice to repeat it back to you. And I wish he could have heard it, but then we wouldn't have the episode that we get. And and what we do get is a really beautiful story. There's uh, an interlude here where Garibaldi explains that his uh, CSI team uh, found that although there wasn't any blood on the the walls, there was something there. There was a chemical that looks like blood uh, for a little while and then will fade away. 
What's more, they found evidence that Edward was very definitely hearing real noises in the hallway, these noises that prompted his memories to begin to return. They were designed to do this. So the point is, right, what all of this evidence points to is that someone has actually done this to him. It's not something that has been happening naturally. It's not that the the mind wipe was done poorly or improperly or not deeply enough or something like that, that he is a victim of somebody doing something here, and we are about to find out who. Edward is praying in a chapel when a group of shadowy figures comes up behind him. Of course, these people are the sons and the brothers and the husbands of the women that he killed when he was Charlie. And they want justice, because very much like Garibaldi, they don't think that death of personality is enough of a punishment for what Charlie did. But they also needed him to remember his crimes, to remember who he was before they kill him. They needed to be killing Charlie, not Edward. And there's a part of this scene that I don't think I ever noticed before, and maybe other people have overlooked it as well. It's just a a line that I just don't think I ever really heard before. And it's that now that these people are all here... All of, but one of them has decided not to kill Brother Edward, that they don't want to go through with it. They've, they've gone ahead and brought the memories back, but when it comes time to actually come to him now and to murder him, they have decided they don't want to do that, that they themselves are not capable of being murderers. They don't want to be murderers, but one of them does. One of them very definitely does. I hadn't even noticed that line because especially the way that we see Brother Edward later with all of his injuries, it does look as if he was beaten by a mob of people, not just one person. It, it does. And I'm actually not even sure, you know, I watched this several times in order to, to prepare for the episode. One of them, when I'm actually taking my notes, I always watch with the subtitles on. I actually don't think it's until I had the subtitles on or, or the closed captioning that I noticed this uh, because I'm, you know, reading the the text as it goes by on the screen because it's such a throwaway line. Uh, and it's really, I think, there really just in terms of, of of thinking about how to film this TV episode so that we just have the two people involved in the scene so that it's not a scene of about mob violence. It's not a scene about an angry mob so that it is a scene about two people um, who themselves are killers. One is already a killer. One is about to be a killer and about the feelings of, of anger and, and rage and what that does to our sense of, of justice and violence. But for that to be a very personal story rather than a story about an uh, anonymous mob, but I just somehow had never noticed it before, but I think it's really important. And it allows this um, other part of the narrative to function, right? Where Malcolm, I believe his name is. That's right. Yeah. Um, goes through his own similar kind of redemption arc, right? Like the way that we see Malcolm walking in Edward's shoes in in a variety of ways, both in terms of violence and redemption um, and, you know, experience with the mind wipe. But what I'm really seeing by you drawing out this point is that, you know, the ways in which cycles of abuse are are cyclical, they are continued, right? That um, the, the simplest, and it can sound really cliche, but I do believe in it deeply, like adage is that hurt people hurt people, right? The way that this kind of violence and pain can, is is destructive across generations, across lives, um, across um, just cycles of, of human interaction. Um, and this is making me wonder, you know, does this keep going with Malcolm? Or does it stop at some point? Like, are there a cup? Does this cycle just kind of keep repeating? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great observation, and I, I think we you know we'll just jump ahead a little bit here to comment on this that we are going to find out at the end that you know yeah this guy Malcolm who is just about to to kill brother Edward is himself going to become a uh, he's going to be mind wiped and he's going to become a monk in Theo's order and so really this is in in some ways this is the story of brother Theo intervening in this cycle of abuse of 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 stopping it right of of he's going to care for brother Malcolm. He's going to care for this person now. Uh, and so, so that the, what happened to Edward can't happen to him because the, the people who would take the people who would be seeking vengeance or justice for the murder of brother Edward are brother Theo and the other people in this, this monastic order. And, Brother Theo is forgiving him, right? That's what the final scene is going to be about, is about the fact that Brother Theo is intervening here. He's saying, I forgive this person, and therefore I am putting an end to the cycle of violence by not perpetuating it. I'm choosing to forgive him rather than to seek vengeance. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to that scene in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so, I guess. Right. I just hope he gets better at counseling people. Um, <laughs> that's just I, just, I just hope that happens. Yeah, maybe some uh, professional development courses in his, uh, <laughs> in his future. We should write to the, I don't know, the bigger head of the the, or the order or the Pope or whatever. Well, uh, there's a there's a small scene here next in which the, the team interrogates this uh, random Centauri dude who had bumped into Edward in the corridor a few scenes ago. He's a telepath. He used his powers to start undoing Edward's mind wipe uh, to bring back the Charlie memories. And what's at stake in the the scene here is that they they want to know where the vengeance posse has taken Edward uh, because they think that they can intervene. They think that they can get there in time to save him, but he's not going to tell them. And so Lita Alexander uses her own telepathic powers in order to rip this information from his mind. And this is something that is very illegal. It's also very painful for the Centauri. And part of how they do this is that Garibaldi puts a black uh, cloth sack over his head and then restrains him. And now that we as a culture have in the, the past 20 years really had to ask ourselves what constitutes torture and whether we should do it, uh, and much of that involving putting sacks over the heads of prisoners, this was tough to watch this this scene. It was tough to watch this and think that our heroes are the heroes in this show. Uh, and especially given the theme of the episode, really found myself having to ask whether this action is just or not, but it's not something the show raises. This is just a, a plot point here. Right. And it's immediately makes me think of Cisco um, and Deep Space Nine and just this idea of like, what kind of violence uh, is permissible to perpetuate in the name of stopping less violence in some other form? Right. Um, and we do talk about that a lot more on Deep Space Nine um, than in this particular episode. But but yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And just just totally uninterrogated in this episode that is actually trying to interrogate these exact questions, these exact themes, or at least themes and questions that are certainly peripheral to it. Uh, just a very interesting bit of our own cultural history here. I think there actually would be a lot to to do uh, with looking at Deep Space Nine and, and Babylon 5 together, maybe a number of shows from the 90s, this kind of pre-9-11 uh, way of dealing with 
extracting information from prisoners during interrogations. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can do a special episode about that someday. Or, you know, I don't know. We could write an article or, or, or something. I don't know. But uh, they do in this scene get the information that they need. And of course, because the plot demands it, it is too late. Uh, Edward is not dead yet when they get there, but he is bleeding badly. And he's also hanging on a cross. And with his last words, he tells Theo to forgive his killers. And he says that he found out he had his own Gethsemane moment. He knew that these people were coming for him, but he stayed. And this is what Christ did as well. He has, in the end, given himself up to justice in order to redeem his own soul. And he hopes now that he can be forgiven for the crimes that he committed as Charlie. Theo here performs the last rites, and and the key words in his prayer are redemption and compassion. That's really what what stood out to me. That's what this prayer is about. And this is a, a tragic ending. I mean, it really worked for me. It got me right in the gut. Here is actually where I did finally cry watching this episode, because it's not the outcome that I wanted. It wasn't the outcome I expected. I thought he was going to make it and redeem himself through works. And a lot of it is just because Edward didn't need to die to be redeemed, right? This is, in fact, what Christianity, the religion that he practices, is all about, right? The idea that redemption is for everyone. You don't need to die for redemption because Christ has already done that. In fact, this is the reason why Christianity is opposed to the death penalty, because it robs people of opportunity for redemption. It robs them of the opportunity to redeem themselves through work and through faith. And so this is really all just extremely tragic that Edward simply could not live with the knowledge of the crimes that he'd committed as Charlie. Uh, Though, you know, putting myself in his shoes, I'm, I'm not sure that I could either, right? And and it's just really a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching scene. One thing that I thought as a as a viewer that was kind of hilarious was the way that Edward like spells out, and this is why I told the story about Christ in the garden earlier. <laughs> like, you know, like as if it wasn't like pretty obvious at this point. They really, they really, you know, hammer hammer at home that like, look, we're tying into this thing from before in case you didn't get it yet. Um, but, you know, thinking about especially with like the imagery, right, of of Brother Edward being, you know, on the cross um, when they find him um, and being hung in this position. Again, there's this internal external difference, I feel like, between, you know, the synopsis of the Christ story that we're told in this and that we in this episode and that we know and this Edward story of like he he had courage to face what was coming, right? He had courage to face the violence that was confronting him and his own death. And also part part of that was his own belief that he deserved to be punished, right? There's like a a self-harm aspect in a way to what Edward has done here that feels different than the Christ story of doing something um, because it is just, doing something because it will save the souls of others. And here... Yes, Edward acts very, very bravely, but also feels as if he deserves it. You've raised something that I, I hadn't really thought about in this scene be- before, but because I, I guess I take Edward at face value when he says, I had my Gethsemane moment and I, I, I faced it and I did what Christ did. I followed the example of Christ. But I'm not really sure, you know, thinking about what you just said, I'm not really sure that that's true, that, that the, the thing to do the thing to courageously face would have been to to 
own up to this, to accept that you used to be this person and to go on living and to use the life that you have left to do good things in the world, which is already what he has been doing uh, as a member of this monastic order. But that that's the tough choice here would be to go on living. But he just... He can't. He's so overwhelmed by this, by the, the guilt, by the, the horror, by the, the, the trauma of this, that he just feels like he needs to be punished. He doesn't recognize that his life is still has value, both for himself and for, for others, that he can be of service to others, that the thing that he can do to help other people is not to die the way that Christ did, but is to live. It's more sa- it's It's less sacrificial and more punitive, right? Because even like the most healing thing that could happen is certainly not that Malcolm murders someone, right? Like if Malcolm has been hurt um, because of murder, the thing that is going to help Malcolm in his life is not going to be to enter into part of that problem and become a murderer himself. The thing that's going to help Malcolm is some sort of model of transformative justice, you know, where there's a mediator and and Edward and Malcolm sit down together and like a, a long process of healing can happen. Um, but instead, the cycle kind of is perpetuated by this action. Right. And this is where maybe some good mental health care could have helped with the people who have done this too, Brother Edward, the people who have been for years searching for Charlie, the Black Rose killer, so that they can kill him. That these people who were so angry and so hurt and, and justifiably so, those are perfectly fine, perfectly understandable feelings to have, but that that leads them to action of uh, uh, breaking this mind wipe and then of uh, of murder, at least for, for one of them, though very close to it for the rest of them, that is not a healthy response to this. And and you're, you're right. What What is the story where Malcolm, I guess really the guy who becomes Malcolm, where, what is the story where he does this and just leaves the station and gets away with it? How is he going to feel about that next week, next month, next year? Where is he 10 years from now? How is he feeling about the actions that he himself has taken? You know, that, that, that's a version of the story that I would, I would be interested in seeing about his own feelings of having murdered a person, uh, has that gnaws at him over a period of years, over the rest of his life. And yeah, you're right. In some way, Edward is kind of doing that to him. He doesn't know necessarily that he's going to get caught and be mind wiped, though, of course, that's a, a punishment in itself, that yeah, he has he has hurt this other person by allowing himself to be murdered in some way. Well, that is not at all anything I was thinking while I was actually watching the show, but it is interesting to ask ourselves you know, about the ethics of Edward's own choice here, though the ethics of it I don't think are really the point of the scene, right? It is about the pathos. It's about the inability to go on living, which I, I do think I, I would be feeling that at that moment as well. I really empathize with that and really feel the pathos from Brad Dourif there. But we do have uh, one last scene in this episode. This is a coda to tie up uh, all of the themes of redemption and justice and forgiveness, to, to put them all together here into a single thread. It is a week or so later, and Theo is meeting with Sheridan to give him the unfinished sculpture, this ugly plastic thing, I think, as you called it, Valerie, but this unfinished <laughs> sculpture that uh, Edward had been making for him. 
And um, Sheridan is moved by this, and as he holds it, he he wonders where revenge ends and justice begins. Uh, is the question that's at the heart, really, I think, of every society, right? We shape a lot of our norms and our rules and institutions around our uh, both implicit and explicit answers to that question, but I think especially the implicit answers to that question. But we are here in this scene really to think about forgiveness, and Sheridan describes forgiveness as a hard thing. And Theo agrees. He says, I don't think anything can be more difficult. Anything can be more difficult than forgiveness. And at this point, another monk arrives. And yeah, it's the dude who killed Edward. He's been mind wiped. And now his brother, Malcolm, as we've been talking about. And Sheridan has a visceral emotional response to seeing this guy. He will not shake the killer's hand. But Theo rebukes him. I mean, it's gentle, but he rebukes him. He says, forgiveness is a hard thing but something ever worth striving for. And Sheridan is chastised, (laughs) convinced. Uh, At any rate, he shakes Malcolm's hand. He shakes the killer's hand. And uh, and that's it. We're going to end the recap there. There is technically one more scene, but that's really looking ahead in the season uh, to the mystery of who or what the Vorlon are and why Lita Alexander has a new kidney uh, and you know, is also suddenly a Professor X-level telepath. So we'll just end on this note on, on Sheridan here, striving to forgive a murderer, because this really was the punctuation mark at the end of the the episode for me. Yeah, and it definitely, again, I found myself relating to Sheridan here, right? That especially, I mean, Brother Malcolm looks real creepy. He's got a creepy, creepy smile. I don't like, can we mind wipe these people and make them look like regular? I don't know what's <laughs> happening here. Um, right. He just, he, he looks, there's something about his happiness that is creepy. But, you know, that aside, I really saw myself in the shoes of Sheridan finding that this would be difficult for me to do. Um, and that made me realize that, I was able in my own mind to be more sympathetic to Edward because I knew Edward as brother Edward first and Charlie second, and that that made forgiveness easier. But knowing brother Malcolm as guy who kills Edward first and brother Malcolm second made the forgiveness much, much more difficult, right? Like I bore witness to and lived through the moment of his violence, um, which made the forgiveness harder to access than seeing someone already kind of redeemed and looking back and saying, okay, I can forgive a thing that I didn't experience in any way. I don't really know if what we have to do with Brother Edward or, you know, with something like this that might happen in our real life, learning that someone we know, someone we work with, a friend or a family member uh, has done something awful to someone else, not to you. I'm not sure that what we're doing there is necessarily forgiveness so much as acceptance, right? The forgiveness is, I think, something that that we have to do when we feel directly victimized, I guess, or at the other end of the thing that needs forgiving, the act that needs forgiving. So they are different things, right? We've accepted Brother Edward. We've accepted that he once did bad things and now isn't that person. But yeah, we now we have to actually forgive this character who we have seen do the bad thing to someone that we have become emotionally invested in, someone we've come to care about over the, the course of this episode. And that is hard. Forgiveness really is a hard thing. I agree with Theo. I think most people do that it is something ever worth striving for. And it, but it has been a struggle for me to be a forgiving person in, in my life, right? That, that anger and a, a quest for vengeance or a, a desire for vengeance uh, is 
the kind of first response to this. It's the sort of primordial feeling that at least I have in, in situations, you know, I guess not, not like this, I've not had this exact situation, but in situations where people have wronged me or someone else that I, I care about in a way that I've witnessed it, it is a, it is a struggle. And I'm, I'm glad to have art like this to help us think about these things, to try to learn these lessons. There is something else, of course, going on in this episode, Valerie, something else that Straczynski is asking us here is the question of whether or not this mind wiping is okay, right? I think there's a clear sense that you know, executing people is is killing them and that that's not okay. But I'm not really sure that I feel very comfortable with mind wiping people either. The death of personality, I'm not really sure I see a whole lot of distinction between that and death of the the body there. How did you think about this? It doesn't sit well. It seems like replacing one problematic model with like a a slightly gentler version of the same problematic model, um, which I think is what you just said. <laughs> I yes, just yes, used different yes. words for it. Um, and so it still, you know, sits icky with me <laughs> um, is, is how I'm going to phrase that. You know, like something doesn't doesn't feel quite right about it. And, you know, I mentioned the transformative justice model a little while ago, and what is so transformative and healing about it is that you you seek to learn um, a, to take accountability and to grow and to kind of expand your thought um, and to face what you did, right? You sit down with, you know, the victim of what you have done or the victims of what you have done and you listen to what they want. What would be healing for them? What would justice look like for that person? Um, obviously not in a way where the victim can just say, oh, well, I want the death penalty, right? There are like some rules about what can come from this. But there's a dialogue um, between, you know, perpetrator of, of violence and victim of that violence that is transformatively healing, but also um, built on consent, right? Like, in a transformative justice model, the victim has to consent to want to even have that dialogue or to or to like be in the same room as this person and talk about it. And, you know, the death penalty or the mind wiping, there's a complete lack of consent um, about what's happening. It's just being blanket done to someone um, and is seems to me to be its own kind of subtler form of violence. I agree completely. I, this is not the justice system that that I would want. I don't think it serves the needs of anyone well. I don't think it serves the needs of the victims well. Uh, it does not serve the idea of redemption well at all. And that's certainly at the heart of this episode. The heart of this story is thinking about what is redemption? Can we be redeemed? How can we be redeemed? What is that going to look like? I don't really think that that redemption lies in the body, right? Redemption lies in the personality. It's not that the thing that is going to redeem this person is to remove the actual personality from the body, replace it with another one, and let that body go do good works. That's not allowing for personal redemption. But I guess I am behind some of the idea here of of trying to create an opportunity for people who have been convicted of of crimes to redeem themselves in society by doing good works. But I'm, I'm just not sure that devoid of the personality that that's, that's really happening here. Right. And obviously, this isn't something that's created an opportunity for healing for, for Malcolm, right, or the other victims who have, you know, been experiencing a lot of pain, um, right? The, the mind wipe didn't make them feel really any better 
Um, so, so yeah, a lot to think about. Yeah, and I guess the moral of the story, or at the end, we're faced with the fact that Delenn was right. That uh, an eye for an eye just makes everyone blind, leads to blindness in society. That's That seems to be what we are witnessing happen here. Well, before we go, a couple other things to do. I mean, first, Valerie, I guess I would just like to hear your thoughts in general about about Babylon 5, your, your reaction to this show. You are on record in many places as saying that you love 90s TV. Uh, you especially love cheesy, campy 90s TV. You especially love it when maybe the film doesn't look all that good. The effects are bad. The sets are terrible. Uh, so how did you feel about Babylon 5? <laughs> you really set me up there, Glenn. <laughs> um, I wish it were campier. I think there's like a silliness to a lot of the shows in the 90s that I really love. Like if you think about Buffy, right? It Buffy tells really, really intense, heavy hitting life lessons, makes us think about things, but it's also um, campy and funny and hilarious and kind of makes you laugh. And Babylon 5 seems to be just like a really heavy show. Like the other episodes were about like dealing with a doctor who's, you know, addicted to stimulants. Um, <laughs> and then there was like some like weird manipulative like war crime justice happening with the Narn in one of the other episodes I watched. Um, and there didn't seem to be a lot of like moments of fun or lightness that I have picked up on in the show. But is that just from my limited capacity? It is just from your limited capacity. I will say, you know, speaking to the the Buffy comparison here, that seasons three and four of Babylon 5, which are my favorite seasons, are probably equivalent uh, in terms of uh, emotional tone to season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right, where everything bad happens. Uh, Buffy's mom dies. There's all sorts of like family trauma uh, in, in season five of Buffy. But, you know, we don't, forget necessarily that seasons one and two and especially four had some real silly lighthearted bits that we also enjoyed uh seasons one and two of babylon five and also season five do actually have quite a bit of camp and straczynski writes a lot of like humorous episodes he's actually a pretty good comedic writer um and a lot of the the tone of the show is actually pretty jokey uh especially in the the first season but but plot lines have um have become entangled things have come to a head here in season three and in season four where we get into the really epic nature of of the story, and, and you know, in similar ways to what Deep Space Nine does, that uh, you know, the tone of season seven is a lot heavier than you know season two of Deep Space Nine as well. Right. If I jumped right into season three of Enterprise, I'd be watching a very different show, and I'd be missing yes, a yeah. lot of context. Right. Um, okay. So that makes sense to me, and that's helpful. I think that Babylon Five wasn't really on my radar, and maybe it wasn't something that I would have ever gone and turned to and watched. And that is changed now. Like I am actually very interested in in the in the world building that happens, and I'm very interested in the relationship between the Centauri and the Narn, um, and and how I see that that could be uh, a really cool driving plot force similar to like Cardassians um, and Bajorans, um, or at least that's the simplistic comparison as I currently understand it. So I'm going to return to the show. I am going to watch the show. And it's worth saying, though, that I quite viscerally hate jumping into the middle of shows. Like, 
I have to watch things chronologically. It's like very important to me. It's it's extremely irritating to like be my friend or to date me because of this because I do not just want to jump into a random episode of wherever you are or just like check out this show. I want to start from the beginning. And that makes sense if you look back over this episode to all my comments that were like, I don't understand the context. I don't understand the history. I don't understand the world building. Like that that stuff gets in the way for me. So I need to go back and start at the beginning. Yeah, interesting, because this has never been my experience. And in fact, I didn't start watching Babylon 5, I think, till the middle of the second season and wasn't able to watch the first 30 episodes or so until I'd watched the whole you know, finale of the the, the, the rest of it, uh, because you know this is what life was like when uh, things were on VHS tapes, I guess. Uh, well, and we're going to be doing some more of this in the future. I, and I don't mean Babylon 5. Well, I do mean Babylon 5. I think that probably uh, you know, we'll stray from Star Trek from time to time uh, on our own if the Patreon supporters who vote for what we cover want us to. And of course, also if people commission us to as well. Uh, But also in addition to Babylon 5, I mean, I know coming up, we actually are doing a Twilight Zone episode uh, that uh, uh, Patreon supporters have voted on. And someday we'll hit some Quantum Leap and some other sort of Trek adjacent shows that we might just jump into in the middle. Um, I I didn't intend for that to be a sort of torment for you, Valerie, but uh, we'll see if we can can get through it together. It's a real problem because... uh... Uh, often enough, people will come to me and be like, okay, I haven't seen Star Trek. Where do I start? And, you know, I want to be like seasons two or three of TNG, but I can't. I can't make myself say it. Like, I, I, I want to put other people like through the punishment. Like, you need to start with season one of TNG. I'm so sorry. Just keep going. It'll be fine. Um, so this is something I impose also onto others. Uh, it's something that I'm struggling to work with. But ultimately, having my knowledge of ridiculous 90s shows um, expanded is is always a good thing. So I'm really excited about it. I just was missing the camp in this particular set of episodes. <laughs> well, more to come. Uh, before we sign off on this episode, though, that we, we already have telegraphed that we did not do a cocktail, though. I think you're right. Let's talk about that on the forum. But we are going to play Smooch, Mary Kill. And, and really what I mean is you're going to play Smooch, Mary Kill because you haven't seen Babylon 5 before. So this is a good way to get your reactions to these characters and just some parameters. You already know these, but parameters, uh, I'll set them for the audience here, uh, that uh, you're actually allowed to pick characters from the whole range of the episodes, the four episodes that you saw, but you are also limited to the main cast members. Uh, so that uh, really what I'm, we're, we're trying to get at is who among the Babylon 5 crew would you smooch? Who would you marry? And who would you kill? Not the guest stars. So uh, what do you want to start with, Valerie? Smooch? Oh, this is so hard. Like not getting to play the game within the little universe of this episode is like <laughs> very upsetting. Um, uh, but but I will endeavor to do my best. It's also worth pointing out here something that I believe your wife pointed out to us in the very beginning, which is that we changed um, we changed the vulgar level uh, down to smooch, but we left kill. Um, so I don't know what that's saying to us about sex shame and murder uh, and our different feelings about them. But uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's just worth calling out as a hilarious moment. OK, so who am I going to smooch? That's the first question. Yeah, let's do smooch first. I am going to smooch Lita. Does she count as a main cast member? Definitely. Definitely. Okay. All right. I don't know how prominent her arc is. Um, so I, I wasn't entirely sure. But um 
she's incredibly awesome and tough and strong. Um, don't love the whole like violent forced um, telepathy bit of her persona. Um, but, you know, she's going to live a really long time, I think, because her body seems to keep regenerating. So so that's cool um you know nice and healthy all the time but mostly <laughs> mostly she's just really sexy um and i was compelled by her and i appreciated her showing up on the station so i think i'm gonna smooch her all right but you definitely don't want to be married to her because she can read your freaking mind so that's and i just don't know how you have a relationship a long-term relationship like that but uh who are you gonna marry i i am really nervous to say this because i have just <laughs> so little knowledge of like how these characters are perceived broadly and what even like what they have done what their story arcs are yeah but- that's all right i i'm the one who reads the emails so <laughs> <laughs> but i think i want to marry jakar well i i do too so i, I you know well we could both receive nasty emails i guess no jakar's great but what what do you like about him um i'm very nervous that 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 he's a deeply problematic character that I don't understand. But one of the episodes in the small arc that I watched was um, about like all that he stands for kind of actually in this transformative justice model of reconciling um, what has happened between the Centauri and the Narn. And there's this really moving moment at the end of the episode where all the Narn on the station stand up for him. They don't want him to to sacrifice himself um, in order to meet these kind of like Centauri um, violent demands um, that are being put through the voice of another Narn character. Um and, you know, he's got like cool old books with drawings of shadow spaceships in them. And he and he tells people about it in a seemingly really compassionate way. I don't know. He just seems like a, a wise person who's compassionate and tries to do the right thing and is well loved. It seems like a good guy. He, he he does seem like a good guy. He is a good guy. Uh, he is eventually going to come equipped with an eye patch. So you'll have that to, awesome. to look forward to. It does look pretty awesome. Yeah, I love I love Jakar. Uh, so I'm going to guess who you're going to kill. And it, it's got to be Londo. No. Oh, okay. Well, who is it? No, no, no. You're going to be really upset. Um, also, the irony. The irony. Uh, but <laughs> I am going to kill Garibaldi. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, that makes some sense. I, he would have been my runner up, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you got a, a good glimpse at Garibaldi, I will say. Garibaldi is actually one of my favorite characters, but I think that that is a fair choice uh, from the four episodes you have seen. Right. And I understand that, like, I'm killing Garibaldi because I didn't <laughs> like that he was pro death penalty, <laughs> which is like a deeply cyclical and problematic thing. But for the sake yeah, of the game, yeah. um, I, I I think he could be better at his job in a lot of ways. Um, I I think he needs to understand what light how how light functions um, and reconsider some of his positions um, uh, on justice. And so I could I could do without him. Well, I will look forward to revisiting this game if we uh, if we do indeed cover some uh, some other Babylon Five episodes and uh, we'll make some cocktails as well. But uh, I think with that done, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. I look forward to hearing everybody's opinions about who I have chosen um, and whether or not I upset people. But I seem to have gotten through it like pretty okay. Um, And you can find us and all of our other podcasts and our forum at claytemplemedia.com. 
Yeah, please do come to the forum and uh, talk with us both about Babylon 5 cocktails. Also, I guess, Valerie's Smooch Mary Kill, uh, but also the really heavy themes in this episode. I think we would love to have these types of conversations. This is what science fiction is for. This is why we go to these stories. Um, you can do that on our forum, or you can also find us on our subreddit just called Clay Temple Media. Uh, so next time, we will be back with our regularly scheduled episode. I don't know what that will be because we record things way out of order here, but uh, you can always find that on the website. And I probably said it last episode anyway. And until then, stay spacey.